Well, it's good to have you back again. It isn't every day that we worship on Friday, and we're back again two days later on Sunday. And so here we are two days after Christmas. Some of us are ready to be done with the holidays, right? After two months of listening to Christmas music, of shopping, after fam- the busyness of family gatherings, we're ready for Christmas to be done. Thankful it's in the rearview mirror. Others of us want to hold on to it for a bit longer, right? We, we enjoy it. Maybe there's still parties to be had. So I'm hoping to be, meet both of those desires somewhere in the middle here this morning. Right, for the month of December, if you've been here, we've been listening to the messages that God has echoed from the manger through time still today. Right? It was not that silent of a night. God had a powerful message that he shouted through the manger, through the birth of his son. We've heard God's voice speaking loudly. But at Christmas, there are also other voices. Voices shouting messages that maybe we prefer not to hear. Right? There are some pretty significant Christmas villains. Right? Think of all your Christmas stories. There's villains that rise up because of Christmas. Because of Christmas, we have Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Who hates Christmas. In fact, he hates pretty much everything and everyone. He hates family. He hates his work associates. He hates his employees. He hates the poor, especially Bob Cratchit and his little boy, Tiny Tim. He hates it all. Right? Christmas brings you the Grinch, whose hate of Christmas turns him into a banana with a greasy black peel, they say, right? And he wants to steal Christmas away from every who in Whoville, including Cindy Lou Who. Right? Some of us probably encountered our own Christmas villains at some of our family gatherings this past week, but we won't talk about that right here now. Right? Christmas can bring out the worst in us. It can. And we really shouldn't be that surprised. We really should expect it in some ways. Because the message that Christmas brings, the, the truth that God has been shouting out to us, to this world from the manger, is not welcomed by everyone. There are those who will put up significant resistance to the message of grace and salvation that God brings. You see, Christmas marks a significant offensive in the massive spiritual battle that's raging. Christmas is like D-Day. It's like D-Day in the God versus Satan battle. right? The the battle of good versus evil. And at Christmas, God makes, makes a landing in enemy territory, right? He creates a beach hold, a beachhead here in the middle of enemy occupied territory in order to begin to, to take it back for himself. It's an offensive that will definitely receive resistance. Right? We need to see Christmas and understand Christmas in its larger context, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Right? The noise of Christmas fits right in with the noise of the battle that has been raging from the moment of the fall and will continue to rage until Jesus comes back again. And that that battle begins when Satan steals what belongs to God. Right? You know the story. 
God creates a, a perfect universe. He creates a garden where he can experience the love of the people that he loves so much. And Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he steals away the perfection of creation. He steals away this relationship of love and trust between God and his people. He rips it apart. And that Genesis chapter 3 moment ignites a battle that rages still today. Okay, whether, whether you are aware of it or not, there is a battle raging at this very moment for your life, for your heart, for your allegiance, and for your soul. That's what, that's what this life is really about. That's the core of what life is about. That's what this story that God gives us is all about. God and Satan are battling for you, and they're battling for me on both a worldwide and a very individual and personal scale. There's a spiritual battle raging all around us and within us. And right at the start of this battle, right at the start of this, of, of this warfare between God and Satan, God promises to reclaim what is rightfully his. And he gives a glimpse of this great offensive that was to come. Right? As God, as God in Genesis 3 is sweeping up the pieces of his shattered garden, he looks Satan in the eye, his arch enemy, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. He will crush your head. God promises a crushing victory in the future. And Christmas is the start of that great offensive that brings that crushing victory. We, right, we think of Christmas as a time of peace. Of quiet. Silent night, holy night, right? In reality, the manger is a battleground. Christmas is where good goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with evil. Christmas is where God makes his move and Satan makes his counter-move. Christmas is where the final decisive battle begins and looms on the horizon. From that Genesis 3.15 promise, from that moment right on through today, this battle has been raging. This book is the story of God reclaiming what is his. Right? Of, of God doing battle for this world and for you and me, his people. And in this story, there's a series of heroes. Heroes who stand boldly on God's side. And there's a series of villains, villains who oppose them. That's the way every good story works, right? The, the, the heroes stand against the villains. Batman stands against Joker, right? Luke Skywalker stands against Darth Vader. Harry Potter stands against Voldemort. Dorothy stands against the Wicked Witch of the West. And in God's story, we see heroes standing 
for God. We did a whole sermon series on them just a few years ago. Right? We, we talked about Abraham and Moses and Joshua. We talked about Esther and, and David and Daniel. And for every hero that stands for God, there is a villain standing against God. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these villains. Why? Because it's often through the villains that God shows his power most clearly. It is often through the villains that, that we see God turning what, what was meant for evil for good. Right? That's what he promises to do. He turns what they mean for evil for good instead. And we see God's power raging in this battle for good as he stands toe-to-toe against the villains who would stand against him. Right? Think about Joseph. Joseph, the villains in his Old Testament story were his own brothers. Remember, his brothers take him, throw him in a pit. They try and commit fratricide. Right? They're going to kill him. But in a moment, they decide to get greedy instead, and they sell him as a slave. And God uses that evil to save his people. Remember, Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt, rescues the whole region from starvation, including his brothers. And later, standing face to face with them, Joseph wisely declares, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God turns their villainous actions on their head. Think about Esther. Esther, Old Testament Esther, who goes toe-to-toe with Haman, the high-ranking Persian official intent on genocide. He wants to kill off everybody who's Jewish. Esther stands boldly for God as his hero and turns Haman, and God turns Haman's evil plan upside down. And the day designated for their destruction, it becomes a day when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Again and again and again, God raises up his people to stand against the power of evil, to stand against hatred and violence and greed and pride and racism and sexism and injustice. And every hero stands against a villain, and Jesus is no exception. Jesus, this ultimate hero who comes on Christmas, leading this greatest invasion of goodness ever, has villains who stand against him. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that this invasion of goodness encounters a resistance of evil. Now take out your Bibles if you haven't already. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, page 934 in the Bibles you have in front of you. Because in Matthew 2 we find the resistance striking early and striking hard. The villain we see first off is Herod. And let me tell you a little bit about Herod before we read of this encounter. And and some of this might be a review for you. But we need to know who Herod is. Herod was an absolutely brilliant politician. Herod, Herod won the heart and the trust of the Roman emperor who granted him the position of the king of Israel. The king of the Jews even though he wasn't Jewish. 
The throne was not rightfully Herod's because he had no royal blood, royal Jewish blood flowing through him. So he was given the dubious task of trying to take this authority that had been granted to him. And he chose to take it through ruthless force. For three years after being granted this kingdom of Israel, Herod led a bloody campaign in Israel, killing off anybody who might, who might be any kind of challenge to his throne. He succeeded in beating Israel into submission to him. And as well, you can well imagine, there was little love between the people of Israel and this king, Herod. And yet he, he reigned on the throne for 30 years. They had to put up with him for a long time. And, and in those 30 years, he worked hard to earn the title Herod the Great. His reign was noted for its splendor in Israel. Herod built whole cities, beautiful cities, with seaports and theaters and stadiums and palaces. By the way, he always built two palaces, one for his family and one only for him in every city. That's how, how fabulous these cities were. He's the one who built that fortress called Masada, right? A magnificent mountaintop fortress for his own protection. Herod is the one who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was magnificent. In fact, they had a saying back in those days that if you hadn't seen Herod's temple, you hadn't seen a beautiful building. It was the, top, it was the best of the best. The reign of Herod was known for its great splendor and wealth. And it was also known for its great terror. Because Herod would do anything, anything, to hold on to the power that he felt was his. Being neither Roman nor Jew, Herod was always on the lookout for who might challenge his power, who might challenge his throne, who might challenge his authority. And he would kill anyone. No limits. He murdered his own wife. Because she had some Jewish blood in her, and he thought that she might try for the throne, so he killed her. When his brother-in-law, his brother-in-law was named high priest, which was a pretty influential political position in the nation of Israel. His brother-in-law was named high priest, and so he threw a big party for his brother-in-law to celebrate that appointment. And at the party, he drowned his brother-in-law, because he was afraid of his brother-in-law's power. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his uncle. You want to hear how dysfunctional the family is? He, he had a number of sons, and, and knowing his father, one of his sons went to him and said, Hey, Dad, those two half-stepbrothers of mine, I think they're plotting to take your throne. And so he knew what his dad would do. His dad had those two boys executed so that he could have the throne all to himself when his father Herod died. But when Herod got sick, when he knew his life was ending, Five days before he died, he got paranoid of that son too. And so he executed that son as well. But Herod was so loathed, so terrible, so hated that he knew on the day of his death, the streets would, would erupt with joy, would erupt with celebration. And so what he did is he arrested, as he, his life was coming to a close, he arrested 300 prominent Jewish leaders put them all in a stadium and held them there. And he declared that on the day of his death, all 300 of those individuals, those prominent Jewish leaders, needed to be executed. 
so that there would be tears in Jerusalem and in Israel when he died. He arrested him, but thankfully cooler heads prevailed when Herod died, they let him all go free. But that's Herod. He was given the name Herod the Great. I think he earned the name Herod the Horrible. And with this history in mind, knowing here's Herod in Israel holding on to this throne with all of his might, you, you have to read Matthew 2 in that context. Start at verse 13 with me. The Magi, the wise men, had just left Herod's palace. Verse 13 comes. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So into Herod's palace ride these wise men. And they come and they ask a simple question, seems simple to them. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Little did they know what they were tipping off with that question. Because if Herod was willing to kill his own wife and his sons, do you think he's going to let this king of the Jews survive? Herod, understandably, as Matthew writes, was disturbed. He wasn't the rightful king of Israel. And anybody who claimed to have the line of David in them, to be the king of the Jews was a threat. Herod is disturbed. The people of Israel are disturbed because any question like that is going to elicit more cruelty from Herod. Who knows what his response is going to be? Well, we know now what his response was. He pulled out his favorite tool out of his back pocket, slaughter. And he gives the command, he sends out his soldiers, and the command is simple. Go to Bethlehem and its region and kill every baby, go door to door, kill every baby boy who's two years old and younger. And the blood flows. And the tears flow. Right? Bethlehem's not that large of a city. So we aren't talking about thousands of children, some some. Some traditions say it was close to 10,000 children. It was probably more like 12 to 20. But even one is too many, isn't it? Even one is enough to break the heart of a family and a city and a nation. And Herod's hatred brings the sounds of pain and the sounds of sorrow to the Christmas story. 
The Jeremiah prophecy in verse 18 sums it up well. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping, great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Lives lost. Families torn up. All in the conflict of two kingdoms. All in this battle against the kingdom of God. And Herod thinks that he's won. It's a little bit messier than if the Magi just would have been honest with him at the start. But it's done just the same, right? He's put Christmas away. He's packaged it in the box and he shoved it away. The manger, the baby, the wise men, they're all done. This invasion of goodness, this invasion of grace has been stopped at the very beginning. Stopped in its tracks by one ruthless villain and his soldiers. And he thinks he's won, and in reality, he's lost. Because a whole regiment of soldiers is no match for the Son of God. And Herod's Herod's most terrible plan isn't enough to stop God's great plan of grace. Jesus is gone, hidden safely in Egypt. And for all of his greatness, for all of Herod's wealth and power, for all of his political prowess and authority, for all of the great cities he built and, and the temple and all of his palaces, For all of his years upon the throne, his death is simply a footnote in the story of the king of kings. We stopped reading in verse 18. Verse 19 simply begins after Herod died and goes on to tell the story of Jesus. Goes on to tell the story of the true king. Herod's kingdom with all his grand cities and buildings has crumbled, but Jesus' kingdom of love and salvation lives on. This conflict of two kingdoms really isn't much of a conflict. Herod's deception is no match for the truth that is Jesus Christ. And neither is our deception. You know, when I look out over us here this morning, I don't see many Herods sitting here. There certainly are still Herods today, right? There's villains today who are blatantly working in opposition to God's invasion of grace, in opposition to God's invasion of goodness and salvation. They don't usually come to church on Sunday mornings, but their overt opposition to God's plan doesn't minimize our own more covert opposition that we live out day to day. Because the spiritual battle continues to rage all around us and within us. Yes, the ultimate victory has been assured, right? The the beachhead was secured at Christmas. The final victory was won at the cross and at the empty tomb. The, the, The victory will and does belong to Jesus. But Satan's not going down quietly. He's fighting to take down as many of us as he can along with him in defeat. And he will use any means possible. And so the call goes out from the manger. The call goes out from Jesus to each one of us to take our place in this spiritual battle. Take your place. 
Because every single one of us either stands with the hero or stands with the villain. Every single one of our actions in life, even the smallest of choices we make, either empowers the cause of the hero or empowers the cause of the villain. Jesus himself made that clear. There's no neutral ground. Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. He who is not with me is against me. Think about that for a moment. That leaves no room for neutrality. No neutral ground. Every square inch belongs to God. And he's reclaiming all of his creation. And to, to be neutral, to do nothing, is to accept what is broken here today. Is to stand against God's purposes. So when you're at work, if you aren't working to advance the kingdom of God there, then you're working against God. When you're at school or on the athletic field, if you aren't working to advance the kingdom of God right there, then you're standing against God. In your neighborhood, in your church community, in your, with your family, with your kids and your grandkids or your extended family, in those places, if you're not working to advance the kingdom of God, in those places, then you're standing against him. At all times, we are either actively standing for God or we're standing with Herod and with the other villains who stand against God's purposes. Jesus invites us to take our place in this spiritual battle. And that means, first of all, we surrender to God. We let God be commander-in-chief, directing our lives for his purposes, right? And we need to be clear. Okay, before you lightly say, yes, I'll let Jesus be my commander-in-chief, know what that means. Know that when you surrender to God, he does not promise that he's going to give you a life that's easy and comfortable. In fact, if you make him commander-in-chief, it means that you are enlisting for battle on his side. And you immediately become a target for the enemy who may either try to destroy you painfully or maybe he'll try and sideline you through comfort and ease and wealth. So know that surrendering to God means that you're part of a larger battle. Okay, the promise is that, that he will overcome. God does win the victory. He will overcome by the blood of his son. And he gives you that assurance. He says that to all who receive him. To those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. You will win. But there's a battle in the middle. It starts by surrendering to God. To say, I'm on your side, God. Be my commander. Be my chief. And then join the battle. We need to let God move his goodness and his grace forward into this world through us. That means some of us step forward to the front lines, wherever those front lines are drawn in this battle. It means some of us, some of us take our place in the vital background positions, giving encouragement, giving support, empowering those who are at the front lines. It means some of us are busy doing the especially hard work of discovering the good that God is working out of what Satan meant for evil in your life. 
It means all of us, young or old, I don't care your age, all of us have a place in God's redeeming and, and reclaiming purpose. So be aware. If you're going to join the battle, then watch where God is working in you. Where is he empowering you? Where is he calling you? Watch for the opportunities that God gives you to move his kingdom forward because the opportunities are there. And watch for God in your own life redeeming what Satan means for evil, for good in his kingdom. Because he works all things for good for those who love him. When we stand for God, Know that the villains will loom large in front of you. They are frightening. They are loud. They are real. And they are dangerous. That's how it's been all throughout God's redemption story. But in God's story, every villain is an opportunity for a hero. To rise up and to echo God's message of hope. God is in the business of raising up heroes. He raised up Jesus to be your hero. And now he's really willing to raise you up to be a hero in his kingdom gaining story. So the noise of battle is ringing all around. You need, to, you need to decide where you stand in that battle. Pray with me, please. God, the villains are real in our lives and in our world, and we feel it and we know it. They scare us. We're filled with fear and anxiety at the power of this world we're scared to stand for you because of the opposition we might face because we might be humbled because we might fail because we might be laughed at we might be ridiculed because it might cost us some of our comfort and some of our wealth There's so many reasons why we shrink back from the villains who stand against your purposes and against your kingdom. Forgive us, Father, for being ones who shrink back. Give us your courage, Father, because you invite us to be heroes Heroes not because we're so smart and so strong and so good, but heroes because we can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can be filled with the assurance that comes from the empty cross and the empty tomb. And we can be filled with confidence knowing that victory is yours and you want to work it through us. And so, Father, give us the courage to take a stand for you. And I don't know where, that's, where you're calling each one of us to do that, Sometimes there's big ways, sometimes there's small ways. But you're asking each one of us, you're inviting each one of us to join in your kingdom movement. To join the side of victory. To stand strong 
with you. Against the powers of evil and against the villains of this world. I can't even imagine, Father, what would happen, what you could do if your church community stood strong. Lord, make us heroes by your grace, your power, your goodness, and your strength. Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done in us. And through us. Amen. Worship team, would you come forward? Would the rest of you please stand with us?